Welcome to EI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we have with us Parth Shah, the founder and president of the Center for Civil Society, an organization working towards bringing a social change through policy and advocacy. My sense is that the commitment was that every child must at least acquire minimum levels of learning, which is grade appropriate. And the obligation of making sure that happens is on the school. That the school would make sure that every child has acquired grade level competencies before the child is promoted to the next grade. Right? And therefore, they took away the power from the school's hand mm. to detain children for not being able to show the minimum competencies. I think largely, the, in my view, the purpose was to hold the schools accountable for performance. Okay. Not to just keep promoting students, which right. is how it got inter- interpreted and implemented. In 2009, the Indian Right to Education Act granted free and compulsory education to children aged between 6 and 14 years of age. It also deemed that no student should be failed or barred from school until they complete their elementary education. When the No Detention Clause was removed, it sparked a huge debate within the country, bringing the spotlight on its effect on learning outcomes. Was the reversal of the no-detention policy into the right-to-education policy a positive step towards shaping our education system, or just the opposite? Parth talks about some benevolent aspects of the right-to-education policy and his views on its amendment to remove the no-detention clause. The conversation further steers towards democracy in policy decisions and the top three ways to implement the RTE Act differently. On to Pranav now. Welcome to the conversation series, Parth. So glad to have you here. Happy to be here. You know, a lot of us just don't know how policy is made, right? I mean, our mental model is some people sit in closed doors and make policy. Can can you just, what's policy one-on-one, right? I mean, what does it mean to be able to shape policy? If you could just give us some sense of that. Um, Very big question. So uh, in India, I think it's very hard to describe the exact process of policy making, right? Because policies are made in so many different ways. So, for example, say, even the Right to Information Act, RTI, was made in a very different way than many other acts are being made. So, initiative came from civil society. The civil society kept pressure on the government that you need to do something about transparency and accountability in terms of what government does. So, Hamara Paisa, Hamara Hisab, slogan created by civil society, worked very well. So, that's one model of how policy gets made. Right. Many other policies like ease of doing business just happens within the ministry and ministry decides that these are the things we want to change and of course there are government procedures they want to change, they can change unilaterally. Right. So you only find out at the end, oh this is what government has done by and large. Right. So that's the other way of <laughs> other end of the spectrum in terms of how policies get made. Right. right. What are some benevolent aspects of the RTE policy? In my view, one certainly was the no detention clause. 
uh, for more than one reason. Uh, that was, I think, was one of the most positive aspect of RTE. And the second is the 25% uh, seats to be uh, kept in private schools uh, for economically and socially weaker students, right? the, the section 1201C. Uh, so I think that, in a sense, does create a space for more inclusive education. Right? Uh, my only sort of objection to that is that it's not being given uh, enough thinking in the implementation of it. Mm. Right? Mm. It's a great idea, but rather badly implemented as of today. Mm. Right? Uh, and you can see quite easily how we can improve the implementation of the clause so that the poor students would actually benefit. So one, of course, that those who qualify would get in the 25% seats and not the other people, like you saw in the Hindi medium film, right? right. Where non-poor are getting into those seats. Right? So if you were in charge of implementation of the policy, this 25% reservation, how would you do it differently? I think two things. I think broadly there are two issues there, right? One is the obligation of the private schools, but how they would create an environment which is uh, inclusive, which is uh, accommodating, which is welcoming right, of the students, the 25% students, and their parents both. Right? It can't be just for the students. Right? So I think that's one big chunk of uh, work that needs to be done, thinking from the school point of view. Uh, we have done a pilot programs in South Delhi with three private schools. Uh, so I know some schools really want to do it well. They're committed to it. They may not have done it on their own if the law wasn't there. Now the law is there, that's okay, we will comply with the law and do our best uh, to do well by the students who are going to come there. Right? There are some schools who are not interested in it. There are some parents who hate the idea of having poor kids in the same classroom. Right? So I think managing that whole dynamic uh, is very important. We found even those schools which are interested in helping and doing well have huge challenges. It's not easy to actually accommodate these kids uh, in the classroom that you are not at all used to it. Right? Mm. So just simple thing, for example, all the notices that go to parents mm. uh, in the three schools we worked with mm. uh, go in English. Mm. Uh, right. Hardly any parent of 25,000 kids is going to be able to read that notice right. or uh, a request from the school. Right? So simple thing like now making bilingual instructions. But you know, should government really be prescriptive about all of these things? Right? They have made this aspiration that a quarter of the seats should go to poor kids. Now it's up to us as civil society organizations, as schools, to find the right ways to implement it. And we should hardly be blaming the government for at least a well-intentioned idea. No. So I think that's my first bucket, which responsibility lies, as you very well said, on us. Right. right? right. So schools, civil society, the parents of 75% kids, <laughs> right, quite, uh, quite literally on their head, right. right. Uh, and there's other bucket of things, which is where government needs to do right by, for them. Mm. Right? What the law says is that government would reimburse mm. for those 20, 25% seats mm. at a, according to the fees of the school right. or the expenditure in government schools per student per right. year, whichever right. is lower. Right. Right? Uh, and governments are not very willing to sort of open their accounts to see, to clearly demonstrate what is the actual cost right. of teaching one student in a government school. Right? which is what they are supposed to reimburse if the fees are higher than that mm. in the private schools. Mm. Right? So that transparency is not there. Mm. Right? Mm. This is what is our part of the bargain. Mm. We expect this from the schools right. and the parents, but of course they also expect at least at the minimum, there's a fair calculation of the cost right? and then timely payment. Right? There are many state governments who have not paid for years and years. Mm. Right? 
And then you wonder why the fees are going up. I have 25% kids in my school whose income is, revenue is not there. Government is not paying me what they're supposed to pay. Where would I cover my cost? Is by charging the remaining 75%. So Parth, uh, can you, uh, you know, describe some of the recent changes in RTE and whether they are for the better or for the worse? I think one of the most recent change that has happened uh, in the Right to Education Act uh, is about the amending the act to allow students to be detained in the classroom up to grade eight, right? So RTE basically had prohibited any detention to be, uh, to be done. So every child must be promoted every year uh, to the next grade. And now the amendment uh, allows schools to withhold. So Parth, why, why originally, what was the rationale behind this idea of automatic promotion? Like what was the thinking? Why did this even come into being in the first place itself? That's a very good question. I think most people don't think deeply about how in all the debate that happened around the drafting of the Right to Education Act, why was this finally got included? Despite, of course, many same challenges people highlight now have been highlighted even at that time. Right? Uh, my sense is that the commitment was that every child must at least acquire minimum uh, levels of learning, which is grade appropriate. Right? And the obligation of making sure that happens is on the school that the school would make sure that every child has acquired grade level competencies before the child is promoted to the next grade, right? And therefore, they took away the power from the school's hand hmm. to detain children for not being able to show the minimum competencies. I think largely, the, in my view, the purpose was to hold the schools accountable for performance. Okay. The idea behind that is not to just keep promoting students, which right. is how it got inter interpreted and implemented, right. was that every child would acquire that uh, minimum learning levels right. before they go to next grade. So if you think about RTE, uh, much of the focus of RTE is actually on the inputs and infrastructure, right? not so much uh, on the learning outcomes. Actually, RTE doesn't even talk about learning outcomes at all. Mm. The phrase is not even used once mm. in the whole act. Okay. Right? Uh, and so I thought that the no detention clause was a way to hold the system to account mm. and that you know you can't simply keep doing what you do normally. You are going to be responsible to make sure that every child acquires minimum learning levels uh, as per the grade before you promote that child to the next grade. Interesting. Is it also because maybe you would have them, you know, older students who would be sitting in the classroom with children who are much younger and would mm. face some kind of a social stigma you know, I'm going to sit in my class and drop away. Could that have been one reason as well? Certainly, I'm sure that psychological impact that people would have, students would have of hmm. having that kind of age gap in the same class hmm. would certainly be negative and one would be considerate of that. Right? So are you excited by this change that now the automatic promotion is removed? No, I'm quite uh, opposed to it. And so in my view, I think RT has only one clause which put the, in a sense, indirectly talked about learning outcomes, right? not directly, but indirectly, which was the no detention clause. Right? The school would have to achieve these learning outcomes. Hmm. Right? There's only accountability mechanism that I, in my view, was there in RTE. Hmm. And obviously, one thing that where the schools were accountable was vehemently opposed by all political parties, not just one political party, right? across the board. Right. And that's the one thing they first removed from the law. So first of all, there wasn't learning outcomes. Then the closest surrogate to learning outcomes is also now removed. And in some ways, you think it's a step back. 
Oh, serious, serious step back in many ways. So part, you know, the government schools is almost like a fixed cost business, right? As in the marginal cost of a child coming to school is the cost of textbooks, uniforms, midday meals, etc. Mm -hmm. But largely the cost of infrastructure, teachers, all of that is fixed. Now, assuming for a minute that, you know, because of this 25%, you have a chunk of children who are moving away from the government schools and into the private schools. And we've already talked about the pressures that the private school is facing to take on these more students. Right? But the amount of money we're spending, the total quantum of money we're spending in the government schools is still the same. So do you think that because of Section 12C, you're getting into a space where the money we're spending is now becoming a bigger cost per child in the government school space? Mm -hmm. The private sector is having to cope with all of this. And as such, you know, from an economist perspective, this doesn't seem to be making sense. There are different ways of thinking about it, right? Uh, so I see that there's a logic to the argument that you are making that now we are maybe spending twice or two times for the same uh, child's education in some ways, right? Uh, question I ask myself is that, uh, what is the ultimate goal of the system, hmm. right? Uh, is to educate every child, educate them well, hmm. right? So if that is the goal, then you should think about how to design a system that achieves that goal, hmm. as opposed to getting locked into hmm. the existing structures we have created. Hmm. Right? So if you think from existing structures point of view, then say, okay, we already got the schools. Right. We already built the buildings. So I, I would say that would be not very conducive to getting a good education system. Right. Right? We would have to be open to the idea that maybe the buildings we did build, which may have made sense, 10, 50, 20 years ago, right? Uh, and it was probably the right thing to do at the time. Hmm. Maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. And maybe hmm. there are different use for these buildings hmm. or different way it can be utilized. And certainly we are trying some of those in like charter schools hmm. where the government schools are given to non-profits uh, to run. Right? Right. So there are ways in which we can think about how to uh, utilize the investment that we already have made hmm. and not let them go to waste. At the same time, I would think that if you need to suffer some ways, then maybe it's worth if we are clear that the path, different path, is the right path for our children. Right. And we should have the courage to walk on that path. How has RTE and you know, the recent changes that you talked about fueled innovation in education? And what are the areas that we need more innovation in education? But I think my big concern, as you very well know, about the RTE has been the focus on the inputs and infrastructure. Right. right, And that actually is, takes away from much of the possibility of innovation. Hmm. Right? Hmm. Uh, you are sort of forcing people to work in a particular box. Hmm. Right? And it's by law. Hmm. Right? And so you have no choice really uh, that you, to operate outside the box. So what illegal. would you recommend? I mean, what are the policy changes that you would recommend? If you were, in if you were the ar architect of the new RTE policy, what are the top three statements that would be there in the policy? I think one is just keep the focus on learning outcomes. Right. At the end of the day, the schools exist, the teachers exist, the money investment goes in there because we want to make sure the kids are able to do what they expected to do at a given age. But right. what does that mean when you say keep an eye on learning outcomes? Like, like how do you operationalize this? So one is just defining what government is, already has done in some sense, right? What are the minimum, minimum learning levels uh, that you should have per grade okay. or age? But maybe say grade one, two, three, by end of third grade, you would have every child at this level. Okay. 
So accounting for that, you can have some parameters of learning outcome that we expect sure. from the system. So the right. goal is set, right? Yeah. The goal is set even today. And then, then using that goal to then assess the performance of schools. Okay. Right. So I think many countries have done what we are discussing right now, like UK for example, right? What they have done uh, is that you give, get two warnings. It's not just a warning that matters, it's also the support government provides you or private sector provides you, whichever way it may be, right? Yeah. So you get a support for meeting those areas where you are falling behind, hmm. right? right? And hopefully that you're able to make up the gap and then be able to meet, meet the learning outcome standards. Yeah. Right? Very similar to what we discussed earlier about no detention clause. Right. right? The idea behind that is not to just keep promoting students, which right. is how it got inter interpreted and implemented, right. was that every child would acquire that uh, minimum learning levels right. before they go to next grade. But Pat, you know, if you administer NAS once a year, right, and you get some results, now that result is of the children's learning at that point in time. Now it doesn't tease out the value out of the school. And there is always a tendency then to filter the best students at the entry stage, right? As a school, then I only want intelligent students to come in my school because I want my results to be higher on NAS. So do you think this will create perverse incentives to have an even more stringent admission criteria? Would we start excluding the children who, are, who actually need the most mm -hmm. education? Uh, it can happen. So I'm sorry, we have seen some places it does happen. Right? I mean, all of the top private schools are like that, right? In some ways, they filter in the best students at the entry level. Every state was supposed to draft rules under the Right to Education mm. Act. Mm. Right? Gujarat drafted those rules like every other state. Mm. Uh, and they do two things, right? One big thing they have done is to focus on learning outcomes. Mm. So 85% overall weightage yeah. is given to learning outcomes. Second thing they have done precisely to address this uh, concern is that you, in learning outcomes, there are two components. How you are performing absolutely compared to other schools, for example. But equally importantly, how have you improved mm. from where you were last year? Mm. So for example, if you took weaker students mm. uh, by chance in a way, right? Uh, then improvement, of course, will be easier to do, in Correct. theory at least. Correct. Right? Uh, so you should be able to score more on the improvement component of it, even though you may score less on the absolute, absolute uh, right. comparison point. Right? Right. So there are ways in which you can tweak how you're going to measure the performance to be able to meet some of these uh, potential sort of drawbacks of focusing on learning outcome as a way to recognize private schools as a way to hold government schools to account, right? So all schools will meet those standards. So the number one change you'd make to the RT policy would be focus on learning outcomes, focus on the value add in the learning outcomes, regardless of the initial learning levels of the students. What would be the second? I think second, and this is what I see in my work that I have done so far in this education policy space, there's a sort of fundamental mindset mm. uh, and quite understandable uh, in the government that government schools are our schools, while those, meaning the private schools, are there. Okay. Right? Often they are seen as sort of non-existent in some ways, but often seen as being competitors. Uh, and therefore, the sense within the education department and the ministry generally is that there is this animosity right? towards private sector in education, right? just by the way it's being designed. It's mm. not people want to feel that way. 
ठीक hmm. है ना अभी भी गवर्नमेंट स्कूल प्रिंसिपल से मिलता हूँ लाइक उसको प्राइड आता है कि यार वो देखो प्राइवेट स्कूल का बच्चा वापस मेरे गवर्नमेंट स्कूल में आ गया एंड गवर्नमेंट स्कूल इज नाउ एनर्जाइज टीचर्स आर एनर्जाइज थिंकिंग लाइक I want to do good because I want the private school kids back into the government. Exactly. So, it, I mean, animosity is a strong word. Right? No, so but, so that certainly is that kind of positive thing is very good. Uh, what I want to emphasize is this different part of it. The law says all schools must must meet this minimum requirements about say number of uh, toilet facilities for girls and boys, drinking water facility, classroom size, library books, right? now all of those laws get enforced hmm. only on private schools hmm. right how oh, very interesting government school the same officer thinks that of course these are my schools i and see for him he says i am trying my best i asked for this budget i got whatever i received in the budget i am doing my best to improve my schools right but of course i would not want to close them down because they don't meet uh, my own requirements So you're protecting your children, but others you want to be more rigid on. Yes. Right. So I think that has created a very vitiated environment in the sector, right? It has become, despite all the efforts of many people, government versus private. Mm. Right. Uh, so one thing is one part of that is of course private schools themselves, but they also have a legitimate grievance that all these laws apply to us. There's nothing of this applies to government schools. They can be running a school in a tent, right, with a porta potty in toilet. that's perfectly okay because they are applauded for that so they are trying their best if i run a school in a slum without meeting all those requirements of toilet and drinking water facility i'll be declared illegal and penalized 10000 rupees a day <laughs> under the current law right and maybe thrown in jail at the end right so even the ngos the philanthropists all of them are thinking about government versus private government versus private government right but not government and private ah. and how can maybe that fuel innovation exactly right and my worry is that unless we do the second reform right which is to separate regulatory function from the function of running government schools in the department of education right so regulators should be separate hmm. which applies the rules and regulations to all schools hmm. including government schools hmm. so they are in a sense outside and there is a separate group of people within the department who are in charge of running the schools hmm. and therefore they can also be held to account hmm. for the performance of those schools what would be number 3 on that policy that you make uh number 3 i think would be once you do this then third is actually enabling uh, schools to then compete as we talked about earlier compete on a sort of equal footing right now one idea there is that fund students not schools so much down the line once you've done all of those things you want to get to a point where every school has both kinds of students one who are paying from their own pocket and other who are paying through public money right, right. for whom government actually pays right so today we have under the 25% seats in private schools where you now have fee paying students and 25% who are being paid by the government right that your government were to reimburse them properly uh, so you got a private school where both kind of students are there mm. right we need to build a system where same thing happens in government schools mm. right so my idea is that you should not have a system which only targets one set of students or children in the in the society mm. right so today government school worries about only one set of children mm. those who come to their own school right mm. but you know and that whole mindset right it breeds complacency mm. right i don't have to be doing nothing frankly right 
my budget is approved by the education department, which is going to continue to come anyway. They can't close down the schools, can't fire teachers, right? So budget will keep coming. There are enough poor parents going to be there who will keep coming to my school anyway. They can't go anywhere else, right? So I got a captive audience for myself, right? And despite whatever you may say, there are well-meaning people everywhere. So I'm not saying the government school people are not well-meaning. But at the end of the day, incentives do matter. If there is nothing to hold me to account, then I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I can do, right? Uh, there's no pressure to improve, no pressure to think hardly about the kids who are coming to my school. What are their challenges? How can I meet those challenges, right? All of that deeper thinking and engagement has to happen. I don't see the incentive for the system to do it systematically. So I want to see the fund students, not school, sort of formula which would change the funding of the government schools, right? Where some students will come who are paying fees and some would come who are being paid by the government, right? So how to attract, so all students are competed by all schools, rich or poor, right? So all schools have to worry about how do I get students in my school, retain them to keep my funding. And then that ultimately is the final sort of tier of accountability, right? And if you get to that point, then a system, at least as a system, could begin to function the way we expect. And then of course many other things need to be done to keep improving that as we move forward. Apart in this completely free market, you know, dynamics that you're advocating for, which is fund the students, not the schools, let people make choices. Are we sure that people will make the right choices? I mean, do you think, you know, this, there might be some suboptimal things happening. People may be traveling longer distances. There would be cases where people are joining schools which are culturally not supportive, you know, of people with varied language backgrounds. I mean, completely leaving it to citizens, would that really solve the issue? It's a great question. And I agree that I don't really have a very good answer. Uh, at least in my understanding, we, we don't have an answer to that question in a systemic way. We have some sort of data, some evidence, some experiments right, to give you some clues about it. I think more in terms of a democratic system. Right? So if you just think about what is democracy, hmm. right? we allow every person to vote. We don't ask how educated you are. We don't ask how wealthy you are. We don't ask, did you study all the party manifestos on basis of which you could decide whom to vote for, right? Have you listened to the speeches given by various candidates? We don't ask no such questions. We just given them the power to vote, right? So democracy in a sense functions on the assumption that at least as a group of people, if not individually each one of us, would make the right choices. So what I'm saying that we have to apply the same principle in many other parts of our life. Right? Uh, in particular in areas like education, uh, for sure, right? where people should have the power to make those choices. Now, yes, they may make bad choices and we know <laughs> in elections, I'm sure we all disagree with some of the outcomes that happen in the elections. Right? But nobody says we should not have the power, we should take away the power of those voters because they are not voting rightly. No, right? we, so then you want to keep that power. I think that should be a given in a democracy. Right. They should have a choice. Now, under what circumstances, what's the, what are the boundaries of that choice? What can we do to help them make better choices? Right? All of those questions are very important and we should think harder and deeper about them. Right? And I know that we don't really have good answers to those questions as of today. Right. But I would not want to start with the assumption that unless I have a guarantee that you would make the right choice, only then I'm going to give you the power to make a choice. Right? That's never going to happen. 
Right. Hmm. Now, my big learning is that much, and this is one learning I have overall working in public policy domain for the last 20 years, right? That much of policy debate uh, focuses subconsciously on our image of the other. Hmm. Right. Usually, I'm not going to be affected by that policy in many cases, right? Hmm. It's about the other people for whom I'm making the policy. Hmm. And the choices I make in the policy metric, in a sense, or menu, right, are quite often decided by my view of the other. Interesting. Right. right. It's very interesting that much, even though we talk about evidence-based policy and obviously do a lot of research and all of that, at the end of the day, it's not the evidence that plays the final role. Right? It is our perception of the other. Mm. Right. So what I would suggest is that wherever there are possibilities of improving or mm. helping parents to make better choices, mm. that's where we should focus on. Mm. Not the parents should have a choice or not. So one example, slightly outside education field, uh, the Bihar bicycle uh, scheme that was run uh, by Nitish Kumar in the first term uh, when he became the chief minister. Right? For the first time in India's history, we didn't actually give bicycles. We gave them money I mean. to buy a bicycle. Right? So basically, government gave money to parents of uh, daughters, I mean, uh, girls uh, of uh, grade 8 and above uh, classes. Right? Here is 3,000 rupees or something they had given. Uh, and please buy a bicycle with this money for your daughter. Yes. And obviously, many researchers loved the idea and did research on it, what actually happened. Right? And we know from the research overall that almost 90% of the parents wow. bought a bicycle with Interesting. the money. Right. I frankly don't know of any scheme in India's history, India's history that has a 90% success rate. So, right. are there so like in a sense, relying on people to make a choice, hmm. here that was the choice given to them. They could have used money for anything else and there was hmm. no, nobody watching them, nobody holding a danda over their head. Hmm. Right? Um, but 90% realize that this is the right thing to do. Thank you, Path. Thanks for really, you know, spending time and deliberating on some of these issues. I really liked uh, some of the debates we had and uh, managed to learn a lot in this hour together. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Path. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to our podcast. To hear more on education policy, do listen to our podcast with Meeta Sen Gupta. You can also check out the entire video series on www dot youtube dot com slash ei videos